0: Welcome to I'd I, Buy That for a Dollar. Oh, Sean, hold on just a second. Uh, oh, I got it. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. Bert, it <laughs> wasn't me.
1: It wasn't me for once. I-
2: Welcome to I Buy That For A Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host,
1: Sean Hartman, connoisseur of Big City Beverages. I'm Jeremy Ruggles, refabricator of quarter-inch guitar cables.
0: And I am Peter Cook, forerunner to the Four on the Floor 4-H Club.
2: Oh my. (laughs) Beautiful. I was, you know, I was literally thinking about making some kind of commentary about how all of our introductions have gotten a lot less imaginative since we've had to write them for ourselves. And then Peter just comes in and just saves the fucking day over here.
0: I had that specific thought when I thought of mine <laughs> is that we needed to get a little imaginative again. So I thought I'd set the bar a little higher.
2: All right. Well, challenge accepted. I'm going to start writing mine for next week right now. Well, <laughs> after, after we record this episode, at least, we can talk about a record for a minute first. All right.
1: Agreed. Who's got a record this week? I do. What's your record this week? It is Ima Sumak, and that is maybe the first of a thousand pronunciation butcherings that are coming this episode.
2: That was going to be my first question. Do we have an actual ruling on the 100% correct pronunciation of this person's name? ema is right. ema's definitely right. It's either sumac or sumac, yeah. And that I mean, could be a difference of just you know what part of the country you live in.
0: That could be regional, yeah. My brain always has seen and I've always heard ema sumac, but I'm not saying that that's correct.
2: Yeah, that might be that Michigan pronunciation going. Hmm. Watch that Michigan pronunciation. It'll get you. Yeah, we love
0: our
1: hard A's up there.
0: Absolutely.
1: What's the name of the record? Well, I brought her first album, her first major label album, Voice of the Hatabe. That's my assumption on the pronunciation there. (laughs) Close enough.
2: (laughs) Now, is this the oldest record we've had on the show so far?
0: I believe so. This is 1949, 1950.
1: I've seen conflicting dates. 1950 is what my supposed research says. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it was recorded
0: in 49. I did see that date somewhere else for it, but who knows?
1: I had only seen 1950
2: in regards to the release of the record, but yeah, recorded in 49 would make sense.
0: It's definitely the oldest because I don't even know what the, I don't think we've, have we done
2: anything in the fifties? Just, uh, Dinah Washington, right? That's true. That's true. But that was a little later on, right? That record that we did. What year did that record come out? Let me see. I'm looking. I'm looking. Oh, that came out in 1961. Oh. So I, don't, I think this is our first actual record from
1: the 50s,
2: and almost from the 40s.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's from like the early dawn of the 50s. Well, I just want to start in on the first track, Taita Inti, which is Virgin of the Sun God. Such a good opening track, by the way.
0: Yeah. Let's get into it.
2: opening statement for an album, especially in the context of 1950, just like that heavy gong hit. And then, you know, it starts off a little bit familiar, like it's kind of, kind of operatic, a little bit loungy, and then it just starts going places. Like, what did people think about this record when it came out? This had to have been turning some heads, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, that's pretty wild that this is the oldest record we've featured and it's one of the most avant-garde.
2: Yeah, definitely. Which... I mean, I I think it's weird how often people have this idea that super experimental music is a new thing because people have been making some weird shit for a very, very long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm always... I I mean, I've had that shock myself. You know, you first discover that there's stuff that out there that is not your normal music that you hear on the radio and, and, you know, you think of it as usually being kind of contemporary, but then you keep going back further and further realize people have been doing that for a very long time, as long as, you know, recorded music has been around, at least.
2: Yeah. And then there's just a special fascination with weird music like this that was primarily in the collections of otherwise very normal people.
0: Yeah, that's the other thing.
1: So, Jeremy, why'd you bring us this record? Well, the voice is mind-bending to me, Mm -hmm. for starters. And... Then when I dug into like, what is this? A sort of story unfolded to me that I found kind of fascinating. So I I wanted to bring the story to y'all. Yeah, and I've only kind of heard
2: bits and pieces of her story just by hanging out with other record collectors. But I've never sat down and tried to separate fact from fiction and all that. So I'm excited to hear what you've come up with on your research.
1: Yeah, and it's difficult with... So, as you could maybe kind of hear there, this is considered to be in the exotica genre. Right. And this is actually one of the earliest recordings in that genre.
0: Should we break that down a little bit? What exactly... I find the word exotic to be kind of a problematic term, you know, but...
2: Well, I mean, just the entire movement and like the entire reason why people were buying these records is problematic to its core yeah (laughs) um (laughs) there's really no way to have a conversation about that style of music without talking about all of that baggage associated with it so yeah i don't know if there's really even a, a a better term for a thing that is in that state however the music is incredible. And like we just said, it's incredible that this stuff got so popular in a weird time in America. It gave some artists a real license to experiment at a time when there was a whole lot less of unbridled creativity in the mainstream. Very true.
0: Yeah. And one of the earliest records that we did that Jeremy brought that Los Indios Tabajares, would that be in the exotica realm too, as far as how it was marketed anyway?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you can uh, you can decide how tight you want to put your uh, restrictions on the exotica genre, and I've seen other people use the term uh, space age as more of an umbrella term because it encompasses a few different things that were happening in the mainstream at this point, where you had these kind of mood music, loungy records, the Hawaiian music. Then you had some interesting like early synthesizer experimentation, all the different Moog records, sound effects records, and stuff like this. But I I think most commonly Exotica would be used to describe pretty much all of that. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah, and there's absolutely some parallels between this record and the Los Indios Tabajares. They're both uh, South American, the artists, and they're both virtuosos at their respective instruments. And both of them kind of, I don't know, I mean, I don't think there's another word around it other than compromise their original traditions to gain a larger audience in America. Assimilate. Yeah, definitely.
2: I was thinking a lot about how how many parallels there were between the two artists while getting ready for this.
1: Yeah, and behind all of the... Cultural elements that come into play here. There's a truly phenomenal voice that is like a once in a generation voice. Ema, it's listed on the back of this record that she had four octaves. Music scholars have actually listened to recordings of her, and she's also claimed later in her life that she had five octaves of range, which is insane and you'll yeah. hear on this record she goes from singing in like a low bass range which was another very unique part of her voices she could go much lower than most sopranos which is like high voice and then could go way up above into like the whistle register to where when you listen to some of these it doesn't even register in your brain as a human voice anymore
0: Yeah, I made a joke when we were listening to that first song about loving the singing saw, but there were points listening to this that I did was questioning if I was still hearing a human voice or some kind of space-age instrument.
2: Mm -hmm. And they they really, I think, play with that concept in the music a lot, too, because they're purposely using a lot of non-traditional instruments mixed into a sometimes more normal orchestra setting.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And there's, going back through her career... Even before the Exotica phase, where she was touring South America, and they called her the bird who turned into a beautiful lady. Really? So
0: she was she was billed as that.
1: Yeah, that's how like she would be referred to in the press and in these like hype articles or whatever in the newspapers. They would refer to her that way because of the like insanely high register that sounds like birds, essentially. Hmm. let's play another song before we get into the biography. Let's do that. That makes sense to me. Let's do Tumpa. This is Earthquake. And it is, I guess it was a very popular song in her live performances because of all the interesting vocal techniques. (laughs) Yeah, so there's like four octaves of range just in that song and like 20 different vocal techniques, maybe?
2: Yeah, at least.
1: <laughs>
0: Are either of you familiar with Diamanda Gallus, Gallus, no. Vocalist, musician? I don't think so. She's got, I have to think that she was inspired by Ima Sumac, to some degree. Mm-hmm. she She's, uh, I'd say she, got, actually, she's from where you used to live, Jeremy, San Diego. I believe that's where she was born. I think she started putting out records in the late 70s and probably still active. She has a wild range and goes in very dark and chaotic directions with it. I, she probably had a little more freedom to do so, than Ema would have, but um, considering this is like twenty five, thirty years ahead of the Amanda, it's pretty incredible that Ema is doing as much as she is here. Another vocalist that I thought of was a jazz vocalist, Patty Waters, who put out some stuff on ESP disc in the mid to oh, late sixties. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That's another vocalist that I have to think took some inspiration
2: mm-hmm. from I Ema. Sumer- tr- I was trying to think of what American vocalist Ema Stemag might have been influenced by and how much American music played in uh, influencing these albums. And uh, I saw online some other people making some comparisons to early jazz and blues and sometimes folk singers in the States. And when I thought about it in that context, it made sense. In fact, I put tracks by uh, Bessie Smith and Odetta on the Spotify playlist. To go along yeah, with this episode.
0: I heard at the beginning of that when I heard both Bessie Smith, a very early blues vocalist, as mm-hmm. well as Odetta, much much more recent. Although she she has passed away in the last decade or so, but much more recent folk artist who, who I'm sure many people are familiar with.
2: Yeah, and they were both really good at having a lot of variety to their vocal techniques. You know, they could have these almost menacing growls at times, and have just so much passion to all these different ways of singing a song. And we're both so good at taking sometimes very simple tracks and just putting so much more complexity into it just by the vocal performance, um, which is obviously something that Ima Sumac had mastered as well. Agreed. Yeah, this is incredible.
1: Well, let's go back. Let's uh, get some context as to where this all comes from. Ima Sumac was actually born, I'm going to pre-apologize here, Zuela Augusta Emporatriz Shavari del Castillo, in 1922, in Callao, Peru. She studied in Catholic schools, which would suggest, given she's from the Andean region of Peru, and she's which, Incan, right? We'll get into that. It's okay. <laughs> it's complicated. Okay, um, the Andean region is primarily. Indigenous peoples and Ima's sumac. It was believed that her mother had a bloodline that goes back to the last Incan emperor who was Atahualpa, Atahualpa, I believe. And this was certified by the Council General of Peru in 1946, which seems like kind of a weird thing that somebody would certify that. You do belong to that bloodline. And the more, you know, if you think about it, the Incan Empire ended in the 1500s, and we're talking about like 1922. Yeah. So
0: almost 500 years later. Yeah. You're between four and 500.
1: Yeah. So the ability to draw that line seems muddled at best, but the. Indigenous peoples of this area are traced back generally to the Incans, I would say. Okay. But a big part of her marketing, essentially, as Ima Sumac, is that she was an Incan princess related back to the last emperor, the Incans.
0: I had always heard that, but I wasn't sure <laughs> what exactly the story was there.
2: Yeah. And that, that's on the back of the record jacket, right? Like, that was a big part of the the selling point and the mystique of the persona that she was selling or the the, the record company was selling
1: yeah and I mean I can't say it's impossible that that's true but it seems unlikely to be able to actually trace that back through 500 years but there's reasons for why it even comes up at all which I uh, read a great article I'm going to actually mention the lady who wrote the article because it was deeply helpful in sort of cutting through what is real and what was manufactured in the story. So Zoila Mendoza, who's a Peruvian anthropologist at UC Davis, wrote a really great article about Ima Sumac's history and its relation to Peru specifically. And one of the really important things to understand about Ima and her music is that there was a huge divide right at this time where she's growing up between Lima, which is a coastal city in Peru, but is also where the political power is and a lot of the modernization was And then the Andes regions, which were filled with primarily indigenous peoples who were facing pressure from Lima to create a singular national identity in Peru, to which there was basically a resistance movement in the Andean region that was the folklore movement. And a big part of the folklore movement was to protect and celebrate their Incan identity and their heritage relating back to the Incans and not have it be kind of squashed by Spanish colonialism and globalization happening and all these outside pressures trying to, you know, essentially wipe it off the map. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Of course, uh, Peru has Machu Picchu, the ancient Incan city.
1: Yeah, and that was, it was presented to the world, they put it, in 1911, which, you know, the people around it knew it was there, and it was, like, referenced in various writings through the ages, but it wasn't until 1911 when, like, some scientists were like, hey, this awesome old city is here. Yeah. <laughs> that it came to like the rest of the world's attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely on my, one of my lists, bucket list is to go to Machu Picchu. My wife has already been, so she's going to have to go back again. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think she'll have a problem with because it was pretty magical
1: and special for her.
2: You've seen it once, you never need to see it again. Not even a picture.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. So that's where she's coming from, and why her embrace of her identity as an Incan princess feels like it isn't from necessarily a bad place to me, I guess is the point I wanted to come back to there. It doesn't feel like a marketing grab.
2: Yeah, that seemed to be the common thread with some of the analysis that I had read was that not a lot of people are arguing that Ima was just like putting on a show as a marketing grab. Ima was, if if she was playing the part of a princess, she was doing it with style and doing it with like a certain amount of power to the way that she was carrying herself. But the uh, people that were marketing her were definitely trying to be as exploitative as they possibly could be because that's the only way they knew how to do this at at that point.
1: Correct. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit again more later. So yeah, Ima grows up in that context, and begins singing in religious ceremonies. And then by the time she's like 19, 20 years old, she's performing large events. Specifically, she performed this outdoor festival that Walt Disney was at, as well as her future husband and collaborator, Moisis Vivanco. And they witness her performance there in her blown away by her voice because it's insane right (laughs) for obvious (laughs) reasons (laughs) yeah and Vivanco approaches her and to uh, perform with his group he's putting together so she begins performing with conjunto folklorico pervano and begins performing on the radio and then touring south america all over Brazil, through Peru, and they eventually make their way up into Mexico, even. And in Mexico, they really start to take off. At that point, they become the Inca Taki trio. And it's her, Moisés Vivanco, and Yolanda Rivero, who later changes her name or goes by the name Cholita. And they became so popular in Mexico that the president of Mexico asked them to perform at his palace in 1945.
0: Oh, wow. Hmm. This yeah. might be the so, first time we've featured an artist who played for... Uh, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of ones who played for the president of the United States, but not the leader of Mexico.
1: Yeah,
2: You know another first uh, that this episode is? What's that? This is the first time we have uh, featured an album that has a song on the Big Lebowski soundtrack.
1: Oh, true. Wow. We'll play that one next, just for you. All right. Thanks, bud. I was planning on doing that one, so we'll do that one next. It's a good song. Yeah. They are doing very well in South America, playing the radio, touring and gathering big audiences, and they decide to go to the United States. So in 1946, they show up in Manhattan and initially move into the Waldorf Astoria, which is, from my understanding, a very nice place to live.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've always heard it referred to in that way.
1: And pretty quickly, they can no longer afford to live there, so they move to a Park Avenue apartment, and then they can't afford to live there, so then they move to Greenwich Village. At this point, they're just like not getting traction in America. At best, they're being seen as a novelty act and reportedly are performing like hospital recovery rooms, it says, and delicatessens and pretty much anywhere that will have them, they're performing. Well, I'd,
0: I'd consider that success for me.
1: Yeah, that that's what I call a good tour, but (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh Ima at this point is like learning how to do like actual cooking for herself and do laundry and things that she kind of viewed as beneath her as I mean she really believed in this persona and lived it as like a princess and was kind of I would say one of the earliest sort of divas. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I've definitely heard people talk about her as that as being one
2: of the first divas ever. And that's how she presented herself from like, you know, the very first album cover available in the states that we got here. Like she is she is living it.
1: So, things are not going well for them though. They're in New York playing these little tiny places for nobody and by 1948, Vivanco is trying to do like a Peruvian tuna importing business because they're just not making money with music. Hmm. And that fails. And then uh, one of the more traumatic things in Ima's life where she finds out that uh, Vivanco has fathered a child with Cholita. So the <gasps> her yeah. husband and uh, the lady that performs with them That bastard. Yeah, hooking up on the side. Yeah, and he just, throughout this story, proves himself to be kind of a... A cad.
0: A cad? That's the first word that came to mind, but it's a pretty dated word. (laughs) Okay. It probably fits the era we're talking about.
1: (laughs) He's unfaithful. Yeah. And seems not apologetic about it, and it's not... It's not good. So what happened? So yeah, she's kind of at rock bottom here and they decide to raise the child as though Emma is the mother and the child refers to her actual mother as Aunt Yola because they didn't want that scandal to get out there in case they became famous. This is like before they had garnered any fame Whoa. but decided that this was the action they were going to do, so as to not uh, invite controversy.
2: That is a bizarre level of commitment to a uh, as yet unattained fame.
1: Yeah, but then uh, right around from there is where things start to take off. There was uh, they were performing at a supper club, the Blue Angel Supper Club, and a Capitol Records executive happens to be there and catches the show and gets them to record a demo to send to LA because he's like, we have to sign you because you're amazing. They end up getting on the Arthur Godfrey TV show and then that sort of pushes it over the edge where the other Capitol Records people were like, yeah, we're going to sign you. She gets signed, but then... Also, the Capitol Records executives are like, How do we sell this? And they complained that she was too ethnic and they wouldn't know how to market the music. Mm -hmm. Of course, they did. Which. uh,
0: They are called Capitol Records for a reason.
1: Yeah. They pretty much just take Ima, and Vivanco is still writing the music and doing some of the arrangement, but they kind of cut Cholita and Vivanko out and really focus on Ema and then pair her up with Les Baxter.
0: Oh uh, Yes, Les Baxter.
1: That's another known name in this genre. hmm Yeah, Les Baxter is a composer, arranger, and... As you can hear in the recordings, it's like a string section. They actually had a full studio orchestra derived of like a bunch of the best players in LA out there at that time. But Les Baxter, he went on to be very associated with the Exotica movement and was extremely exploitative and putting out I don't think we really addressed it earlier what exactly the problematic part of exotica was but the so the record les baxter put out the following year from this record was called ritual of the savage and he played a big part in promoting wow i'm not sure how to word this mm-hmm. promulgating i don't even know what that word means
0: <laughs> i think it means what you're trying to say let me uh, promote or make widely known an idea an idea or cause like
2: yeah it's not necessarily that it's just that like it's just like oversimplifying indigenous people of, of various nations and geographical locations
1: well i mean it's oversimplifying but also not even providing any sort of realistic image it he portrays them and encourages things like chanting and animal sounds to like evoke the sounds of the jungle but that's not the reality of people in these faraway places he's just painting this picture of them as primitive peoples kind of coming into the world of modern recording Yeah, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. And
0: essentially exoticizing
1: them.
2: Yeah, and it was designed to, you know, echo the fucked up images of these people that um, Americans had already learned in school. This idea that Western civilizations are the best and the most advanced, and they, you know, easily defeated these indigenous civilizations that just were no match for them. And that's like the only narrative that people are taught. So when people have that context and then they see a record like Ema Sumac here, where it's this ethnic looking person to use, you know, th- their terminology. And then there's a volcano in the background and some like idol looking statues on there. It's like, it's like, oh, yeah, those are the things I know about South America. OK, this is an interesting record. Yeah. And
1: that was the majority of Les Baxter's career. So, yeah, that's who they paired her up with for this album
2: and the the also uh the thing you'll notice in uh looking at exotica records is if there is a person of color on the album cover, typically it is a white person in uh varying shades of makeup to make them look like whatever country they were trying to make uh exploitative music of there, There's a whole list of reasons of why exotica is extremely problematic, but uh the music's good
0: yeah we don't we don't have to ignore the music because. Everything else about it has aged really badly. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is—I mean, this is all we have of Emma's recordings—is—is mm-hmm. is that, and you can't—or I mean, I would rather not, just not have her voice available to me. Yeah. Well, I, I think the only real
2: problem I have in regards to to specifically her stuff is when people reduce her her art to a simple like oh the you know the person with the funny fake name and they had a a wide register and that's like often the only thing that people will say but when you actually put the record on and listen to the tracks this is incredible groundbreaking music especially especially you know the the vocal elements that she's specifically adding i mean les baxter is he he wrote some cool music but he's uh he's no genius
1: very true So this album hit, and it was a hit. It was, you know, one of the very earliest Exotica records to really take off. And it launched a decade of fame and fortune for Ima, essentially. She toured Europe and then eventually through Asia and later in the Soviet Union. She was in a few films where she's performing and singing uh, she was doing like stage plays, yeah. The fifties, she was huge. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and she was so huge. She's on the Big Lebowski soundtrack.
2: Exactly, so big. You know,
0: just like Captain Beefheart.
2: Well, do you know why they they used her song on the Big Lebowski soundtrack, or do you remember what scene it's in in the movie?
1: Um, <sighs> it's in the party. Yes, but specifically
2: they were having a tiki party. Which oh was part of the reason why there is a genre of exotic music to go to go like th- why there was a market for it. Is what I was trying to say. This was the same time that the concept of the tiki party was very in fashion in like upper middle class American households. It's just like you'd have a tiki bar on your back porch and people would wear like novelty skirts and like the, you know, the flower necklaces and just do a whole mismatch of uh cultural appropriation. And the only way you could really have the best kind of party like that is if you had a whole soundtrack of this kind of music. So that's why you'll find Ima Sumac, you know, these like basically avant-garde records in people's collections, who is like, you know, all Johnny Mathis aside from this.
0: They had a specific purpose. Yeah. Well, should, should we listen to that song?
1: Yeah. Should we get yeah, another song? Yeah, that's where I was going next. Let's, uh, let's just put it on. All right. Ate Pura means High Andes.
0: hello dude i'm jackie treehorn
2: yeah that was that scene
0: man that cut hearing i've only really heard as much as gets played in the movie and hearing the rest of it whoo man really phenomenally out there stuff Mm -hmm. can't imagine hearing it on a record in 1950
2: yeah i would say a lot of this record could be accurately described as hauntingly beautiful oh for sure
0: oh yeah definitely honestly, there were some points where it even reminded me a little bit of Yoko Ono.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Some of her work. I'm a big Yoko Ono fan, so that's not a negative as many people would take it.
2: Oh yeah. I forget that we have to say that. <laughs> we, we've we talked a lot about definitely having some Yoko Ono on here and talking shit about all her haters because boy, am I sick of people's stupid opinions about why they don't like Yoko Ono. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> yeah. Agreed. We're coming for you.
2: Yeah, get ready.
0: <laughs> Sooner or later, we are going to feature probably an 80s Yoko album on here. Mm-hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Wow.
1: Well, while we're still here talking about Ima. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. We'll go back to Ima, though.
1: But that that does tie into our point, though, of
2: experimental music not being new. People were mad at Yoko Ono doing these experimental vocal techniques, and there's so much precedent for it happening before that in plenty of different contexts.
0: Yeah, she was just... The most famous unknown artist, as John Lennon called her, mm-hmm. it's like it's like if uh, K.G. Hino had married Madonna,
2: right? Exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that alternate reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if I can talk so about Ema, yeah, what do we
0: got about Ema?
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> you can talk about Ema. Thank you. So, the 1950s was peak of her success as far as fame and fortune. But it also was not great for her. In 1955, there was another incident. Is that the word? For Vivanco fathering more children out of wedlock? More mm. scandalism. And this led to their divorce in 1957. That, on top of him fathering children with other women, He also had ruined their finances because he just hadn't been paying taxes since they arrived in America. Well, he just sounds like the worst. He was not good for her life, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And in 1959, she goes back to Peru and is touring there and is met with a lot of negativity as many of the intellectuals and artists in Peru saw her sort of as a traitor and assimilator, kind of doing the opposite of what the aim of the folklore movement was. So she was booed, and they wrote negative things about her in the press there because, you know, she... Presented herself as an Incan princess performing Peruvian songs, but these songs, as has been pointed out, you know, there's a whole bunch of influences and almost none of them have to do with Peruvian folk music.
2: Right. You could argue that she was potentially put into an impossible situation where if she was doing more traditional. Representations in the music that she was making, there's a good chance it just wouldn't have been promoted as well and might not have ever taken off in the states.
1: Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. That did not go well. Also, on this trip was the first time she had actually gone to Machu Picchu because it wasn't actually until the 1940s that they built a road out there and put hotels near it and made it accessible to non-explorers so that was the same trip that she actually got to see Machu Picchu for the first time herself so she comes back to America it says in some sources that she got remarried to Vivanco that year but then according to her own website she claims that they didn't actually get remarried though that's what She told the press for professional reasons. Mm. And then in 1968, she finally cut off like all professional and personal relations with the dude because there is like some incident where he fathered a child with like a 20 year old lady telling her that he was going to make her as famous as Ema. Yeah, man. What I'm learning from this episode is men are the worst. This one seemed pretty bad. Yeah. She continued performing all over the world up through I think Sean mentioned before we started here in 1971 she put out a sort of prog rock album.
2: 1972 on London Records. She put out a record called Miracles, which I've never seen a copy. It's like, you know, like 20-ish dollar record, but yeah, it was a weird mashup of lounge exotica with funk and also like prog elements and it ripped i gotta find a copy it was so good
1: yeah i didn't actually listen to that one yet i just read about it and was like that's strange Mm -hmm. and that was about a decade after her most recent release which was 1961 and that was actually her final official studio album okay
2: yeah Still produced and written by Les Baxter, actually.
1: Yeah, she returned to work with him on that album. In between, uh, I think the majority of the albums in between, Vivanco was actually doing a lot of the arranging. And actually on, oh, this would be a good time to mention this. So the 12-inch LP version you're going to find of this album, and you will find it because there's like a million plus copies that got sold actually has the album Voice of Hitabe all on one side, and then the other side has another album, uh, Inca Taqui that... Yeah, from, from
2: 1953.
1: Yeah, from a couple of years later. And then in 1955, they started putting out these 12-inch LP versions that had both of these albums, though the album is just labeled Voice of Hitabe.
0: Yeah, I think the album itself is pretty short, individually, it's about 25 minutes. Yeah. So I can see why you could fit it onto one side.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other side, the album from 53, you'll hear a lot less strings and a lot more... I really don't have the know, <laughs> the knowledge to say, but I think there are more Peruvian folk-type instruments on it.
2: It has that feel. It It definitely has the feel like they're trying to inject more Peruvian influence to that record than any other record of hers that I'm familiar with.
1: Yeah, though there's still absolutely elements of Exotica within it, Mm -hmm. and like chanting and things of that nature.
2: Right. I actually uh, kick off the Spotify playlist with a track from Inca to Key,
1: the track uh, Chuncho. Yeah, that one...
0: Why don't you tell us what else is on that? Well,
1: (laughs) I'll just say quickly, that song has I feel like her vocal range and abilities are really condensed into that song of being able to portray like mm-hmm. all dimensions of it in like 3 minutes or whatever
2: 3 minutes 42 seconds according to Spotify where you can find that song and others from our weekly playlist inspired by this episode we all put our heads together on the artists that I selected this week I opened with, yeah, like I said, Bessie Smith and Odetta for some of that jazz and blues vocal influence. And then another architect of the exotica and space age genres is a guy named Raymond Scott. Are either of you fellows familiar with him at all?
0: Only by name. I feel like I've heard that name dropped.
2: Yeah, I don't know much more than that, other than like the right people have recommended him to me at different times. Some of his records are a little hard to find, but he was one of those early guys that crossed over from big band pop into some experimentation, both musically and technology wise. He was an early experimenter with, uh, with synthesizer sounds. And I put a track on there from one of his three volume soothing sounds for babies set, which is mostly like very, very weird synthesizer music that no one would listen to now and be like, oh, I should put this on for infants to fall asleep to. <laughs> But it's great a couple different ima sumac records from some of her other albums and then uh you know you can't talk about exotica without the god martin denny Mm -hmm. so i include a track off of his album exotica suite because that's one that combines more of the big band string section with the exotica sounds in a similar fashion to this ima sumac record and then uh, also got some brazilian jams walter Wanderley from the amazing rainforest album josephine baker at peter's recommendation
0: yeah that was the first one that came to mind when you asked for suggestions
2: yeah a fascinating person if people haven't looked up josephine baker well, Oh,
0: she, she's she got quite a story that we can't do justice to here yeah so.
2: exactly <laughs> a legendary uh lounge singer Idie gourmet or is it gorm
0: Well, I think it's Edie Gourmet.
2: Edie Gourmet. Okay.
0: I think it's Edie Gourmet.
2: One of those names that I've only read a bunch, and I don't know if I've ever heard someone say it out loud before, so...
0: I think her name was Edith Gormizano or something like that, so yeah, I think it's Uh, Edie Gourmet. Okay.
2: We definitely got to do an episode about her at some point, because that's a true um, bargain (laughs) bin bin. (laughs) gold right there. Oh, yeah. you, You can find her
0: everywhere for a buck or two never mm-hmm. more than that
2: mm-hmm. included a track from the los indios Tabajares album maria elena that we did an episode on early on what was that our second episode
0: yeah. yeah i think so
2: yep and then a uh a quick extra reference to the big lebowski soundtrack i included a different version of the sons of the pioneers tumbling Tumbleweeds" song that you hear mm-hmm. in the intro yeah That is off another very famous Exotica record by an artist named Tak Shindo, which was a weird thing. It was a, I believe, Japanese man who was making fake traditional African music and making these like very racist, exploitative African albums that like the music on them is really interesting and everything else about it is bizarre and terrible. Um, (laughs) But I included that track from his album, Far East Goes Western. And then Cal Chater after that, doing some very Exotica-influenced music from his album Breeze from the East, and then following that with an even more experimental version of Within You, Without You by the Alan Lorber Orchestra.
0: Oh, wow. Doing the Beatles song?
2: Yep, yep. And then uh, doing the only budget Alice Coltrane album that you would be able to find, her collaboration with Santana Illuminations. Put the, tr- the track uh, "Bliss: The Eternal Now" on there, and then another one of the big architects of Exotica is a guy named Eden Abes. Are either of you guys familiar with him at all? Nope, not really. He wrote the song "Nature Boy" for Nat King Cole, and is one of the founders of the hippie movement in a weird way, and also one of the architects of Exotica as a genre. He did this amazing, very hard to find album called Eden's Island where it was a concept piece mixing his spoken word poetry with these kind of mood paintings of music. And that was one of the blueprints for a lot of the Exotica music that was made by such artists also featured on the playlist as Arthur Lyman, Esquivel, Les Baxter. And then I included a mini Ripperton track in there at the end because of the you know similar vocal range. Just to round things out. Just to round things out, track from Perfect Angel, the, the closing track, Our Lives, that has the, the Stevie Wonder harmonica on it. Mm. So that's the playlist. You can find that on Spotify. If you search for I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, you can find the playlist for this week and every other of our season two episodes if you want to dig deeper in some similar or influential artists.
0: And while you're at it, do not forget to follow us on social media. If you haven't already, we're on both Instagram and Facebook. I'd buy that podcast and you can always support us on Patreon. We continue to grow even after the October season two kickoff. We're still growing. Thank you to everyone who has become a Patreon supporter. You can find the link in the show notes or you can find us at patreon.com slash i buy that podcast we have all kinds of uh different levels at which you can support us and get extra content cool and what else do we have to say about this record
1: i gotta i gotta give this a hollywood ending here fellas okay so hit me with it after she goes back in the 70s as well back to peru to take care of her mother who is getting old and her health is failing and at that time the people are still not at all appreciative of what she's doing musically but then in 2006 some fans of hers set up a visit with multiple ceremonies to honor her and her achievements and her music so in 2006 she finally received that acceptance from her country that she kind of had been denied from basically as soon as she left the country
2: that is a great ending yeah and just warms the heart right there especially because she
1: died two years after that right yeah she died two years later in 2008 at 86 years old and then to uh, make it the artful indie double twist ending her recordings were also among the 2008 universal fire mm. another one of our Whew. i'd buy that artists who whose recordings masters are uh, perhaps lost forever yeah so any reissues that come out are fundamentally
2: not going to sound as good as the early copies which means get it now before it experiences the infamous I'd buy that for a dollar bump in price true
0: yeah we definitely can't be held accountable if if you go out six months from now and find every record that we've featured on here to be now a 10 15 20 dollar album it's just the demand
2: goes up that's why you gotta subscribe and listen to these episodes when they come out you gotta beat the rush so true early bird gets the ema Sumac
1: (laughs) As they say. Yep. Well, that's that's more than enough. I've talked long enough. All right. Thanks for listening to I Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman.
0: And I am Peter Cook. What are we going to leave this episode on? Which track do you have queued up, Jeremy?
1: I want to leave it with the track Hitabe, whom the album is named for, Voice of Hitabe, And just a. Uh, real real quick and dirty of the what that word is uh hitabe was a story of a young incan lady who loved an aztec prince but it was a forbidden love that she couldn't hide in her heart after a certain amount of time so she went into the mountains to sing out her love for this prince and her voice was so penetrating and enchanting that it reached and then killed the prince. Whoa. Whoa.
2: <laughs> yeah. So this is a potentially deadly record. Yeah. This
1: is, uh, like VHS or, uh, any of those horror movies where like you watch the thing and you just die.
0: Yeah. Ring the ring Ringu. Yeah.
2: You heard it here first. Make sure you're well hydrated before you listen to this record.
0: Or uh Infinite jest. That's what I think of. Yep. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get out of here on that
1: track. Bye-bye.